Uh, good. Well, we're, we're in Jonah chapter 2. Just uh, wanted to get you, let, get you guys uh, going on something. When you guys walk in, you'll notice that there's a, a text we like to put on the screen. Uh, it's going to be different each week, and what that does is basically uh, just kind of foster our time. Uh, it kind of gives you a theme of what we'll be studying together. So if you're walking in, you're sitting, and you see a text on the screen, you're wondering, why is that verse up on the screen? Why is that scripture there? Uh, we're not in Micah. You saw that this morning. Yes, well, we're not in Micah, but uh, this is kind of, uh, that text is going to help us kind of understand the, the theme of what we're going to study this morning. So just know that as you guys come in, as you guys read uh, the text that's on the screens, that's what's uh, setting that up for us. So um, we are in the book of Jonah. And I want to say two things before we start. One is I was so encouraged this week to get so many emails and notes from you uh, just talking about how encouraged you were by our first chapter study, uh, all that the God was teaching you, uh, especially those of you who said, wow, I, I always thought it was a whale growing up. It's just a fish. You called your kindergarten teacher from Sunday school and told her uh, that, hey, it would never have said whale. It said fish. So you feel good about yourself now. That's great. She feels awful. So should have extended some grace there before you wrote me. So next time, just, just know. Uh, so it's fun learning those things, right? I mean, we hear these stories all the time. This is like the famous story, Jonah and the whale. Well, never said whale. I don't know where we got that. And a lot of other things too. Some people think that it's all about God just saving him from a fish. Point of the story is not the fish, okay? The point of the story is God going after rebellious sinners and sending him to a city that he loves to proclaim repentance of sin to a good father, a good God who loves people. Um, and so as we're seeing this, it's been really fun to kind of walk in it and see new things that maybe we've all sat in for years in grade school as God is, is reteaching us uh, how good he is, Old Testament and new. So uh, it's, been, it's been really fun. Um, so here, let me give you some background as we get into uh, Jonah chapter. Actually, why don't, why don't we just pray to, that God would illuminate our hearts and then we'll, and then we'll dive in. So God, thank you that uh, we can gather this morning. I pray that we would never forget the luxury that it is. God, that we are privileged people to come together and gather in freedom this morning. Uh, God, forgive us when we just feel tired or lazy or apathetic in our hearts to gather and, and be a part of what you're doing. Um, Lord, for there are many that are in hiding this morning. There are many who are fearing for their lives. Uh, there are many who do not have the gift of seeing hundreds of brothers and sisters in the same room. They only could get four or five. So God, may this be sweet to us. May we treasure this time, may we enjoy your word, may we enjoy singing, observing your supper. God, we're thankful that Jesus is central to all things. Pray we'd see more of him in the scriptures, that you'd open hearts, illuminate minds to what only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, here is, uh, just in case you missed last week, one, just go listen to the audio, two, let me kind of get you caught up on the, on the sprint track. Here's, here's what happened. Israel, okay, was at a time in their, in their nation where they were growing, they were expanding, their borders were enlarging, there was prosperity, they were strong culturally, they were strong economically, and as they're growing and, and getting bigger, we, we learned that God's hope for Israel was that they would be a missionary nation to all other nations. So we saw that God chose Israel and brought them together, not so they could just enjoy God's blessings for themselves, but so that people would look as they marveled at the wisdom and knowledge that they saw among these people and say, who's the source of that wisdom and knowledge? Right, so as they saw the set-apartness of Israel, as they saw them walking rightly under good commands that weren't burdensome but grace-filled and encouraging, right, they would see, well, well, who's the God who's a part of these people? So they were meant to be a visible display of God's character and nature. And what God would do was he would send prophets 
okay, during this time as they were a missionary nation. So he would send prophets first to teach and talk to the people of Israel. And what they would tell the people of Israel was, hey, this is what God desires of you. This is how you live set-apart lives. This is how you live holy lives. This is how people can see more an accurate picture of our great God through how you live in community. And then they would also send prophets to other nations. And that was more repent, judgment, you're sinning, God's a good God, turn to him, follow after him. There's a redeemer coming okay, to cure the sickness of sin, the law that you can't keep. And here in the midst of this time, God picks a man named Jonah, who we learned last week is the son of Amittai. That's all we really know from 2 Kings. He was a prophet of God, which simply means he spoke about God. God gave him things to say, and when he said them, they happened. Okay, so he had a, a lot of probably pride. He probably enjoyed that. We learned last week he found a lot of self-righteousness in what he was doing, and we saw that because God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to go to preach repentance of sin to the Ninevites. And immediately, his wall goes up. He's like, I'm not going to go to those wicked pagan people. They don't deserve forgiveness. Because we saw in chapter 4, that, that gave us a window into why he didn't go. And he didn't go because he saw the good character of God. He said, I, I didn't go because you're kind. Like, I didn't go because I knew you would cause the city to repent. And so what does he do? He runs from God's call on his life, and he gets on a boat, he heads to Tarshish, and what does God do? He sends a storm of mercy, not wrath. And we saw how, how God, like difficult things that happen in our lives, it's not just punishment if you're in Christ. If you're one of his, if you're a son or daughter of God, then 1 Thessalonians and Romans 5 will teach you that's not wrath, that's mercy. That God sends this whirling miracle storm of mercy to rescue Jonah from himself and his running. It's amazing. We see pagan sinners and sailors saved through, that, that's what's so ironic, right? Jonah leaves because he doesn't want to see pagan people saved. And then God saves the sailors who he's on the boat with after they throw him off the boat. So God just shows his sovereignty in saving them. And then as he's drowning and wallowing and falling to the bottom of the Mediterranean, God sends a fish to preserve his life. Another radical act of mercy. So what did we see in chapter 1? God relentlessly going after rebellious sinners. That God's not done with Jonah. That God has a plan to accomplish and that will not be thwarted by someone's disobedience. We also see the relentless kindness and mercy of God over Jonah's life, right? That even despite our disobedience, God still works these things for good. Right, in the difficult seasons, in the storms of your life, where you feel like you're in the pit, you're at the bottom, you don't see, how could this possibly be good? We learned that the best thing possible for Jonah was a crazy storm to shipwreck him and throw him overboard. We're going to see how that breeds new life, not just for Jonah, but for the city of Nineveh. So here we have in Jonah chapter 2, in the morning, we find him in the belly of a fish, responding in a way that's very common to the soul. Okay, so here, listen to me. Whether you're religious or completely irreligious, this is the defining mark or kind of the ground level for people when they get in moments of distress, they cry out, right? Like, like it doesn't matter who you are. Like, you could be someone who doesn't believe in a deity at all. You could be someone who believes in the true God. You could be someone who's polytheistic and believes in a ton of gods. You're gonna cry out to whatever God you worship. You're gonna just cry out because what happens? Things become more clear. You realize, I'm not in control of this. Like, I don't have any authority here. These things are happening in my life. I can't grab them, so I'm just going to cry out. You see that happen to Jonah. It's the first good thing Jonah does. 
the first good thing he does is pray and cry out to God in his moment of distress. And here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that's just a Hebrew word for grave, out of my own grave. Okay, you see deep distress here. Out of my own grave I cried, and you heard my voice. Okay, so here's Jonah. He's finally cornered. Right? He's finally got his back up against the wall by a good, gracious, relentless God going after him. Now remember, we're seeing a change in Jonah. Right? In, the, in the first chapter, he's running as hard and fast as he can away from God's call in his life, away from what he thinks is going to be uncomfortable. He wants to stay comfortable, and that, then the irony of that is he gets more uncomfortable, finds himself in the belly of a fish. Right? He's running, and now his back's up against the wall of repentance, and he turns to God. He stops running from him and starts running to him. That's the beautiful thing of repentance, right? That's where repentance is. You turn from your sin and turn towards Christ. You stop sub- submitting and sacrificing and substituting your will for God's will. You finally say, okay, your will be done, right? Like Jesus. We start modeling him. And here you see him beginning a prayer of repentance. And this is an amazing change. This is, I was thinking about Luke 15 with the prodigal son. Right? It's, it's the same thing. What does the prodigal son say when he runs, decides to be his own God, worship what he wants, run life the way he wants? You have the father saying, hey, no, this is good. You're in my care. I'm a good father. I'm a good dad. He runs away, and then he says eventually when he realizes the pit of his sin, I'm going to get up and run to my dad. He forgives me, right? You're seeing this in Jonah. You're seeing him say, I've got I to run to my good father the God of heaven who made all things. He loves me. He cares for me. And so here you're seeing he stops running. He's, over, he's, he's overcome with God's pursuit of his life. He's just completely floored by it. He's saying, you're in this. You're the one who cast me overboard. Right? We're, we're going to see him talk about this. Look at what he says in this text. He says, I cried to the Lord in my distress. Out of my grave I cried to you. The reason he's crying is because this isn't a happy occasion, right? Like, I'm blown away by how many people read Jonah, and they think, and the way the story's told, that he's in the belly of a fish. It's like a five-star resort with free Wi-Fi and complimentary breakfast, right? Like, it's like, he just loved it. I've seen picture drawings of him sitting in the belly of the whale, and there's, like, lights hanging down, and he's just, like, talking to God, having this, like, peaceful prayer time. Like, listen, this is a horrific experience. Like, he is in utter agony right now in the belly of a fish. Like, this is a horrifying moment for Jonah. This is not him getting his complimentary breakfast at five stars. These, these three-night accommodations are not what you think at the Hilton, Right? Throw the quality in. Just threw a wrench at it. I know, it's a bad place. Okay? Quality in's not that bad. But belly of a fish is worse. And here is where Jonah... So you got to get your mind in here, okay? you gotta, you got to get yourself into the story. Okay, stop thinking about it like you did in grade school with the pictures you saw. Like, we, this is what happened in Noah's Ark. We looked at Genesis, right? It's a happy little time. They're all floating above the water, right? No, it was a crazy, horrific storm. I bet poop was flying everywhere, right? Animals. I mean, come on, man. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, that's not enjoyable. They're all singing hymns and just rah-rah, you know, Jehovah. Like, 
Anyways, get yourself in the story. So here we go. So it's this painful experience, right? And, and he knew he was good as dead. Okay, that's where his soul is. His soul is good as dead. Like, like he realizes utter distress. Man, I'm at the bottom. And I got nowhere to go. I'm in my own grave. That's why he said I'm crying. He assumes he's just going to die. I don't think Jonah thought he was going to be rescued. I think he's crying out for last minute mercy. God, just, I see who you are. All I need is mercy, even if I die here. Just, I'm reminded of your mercy. I don't think he thought he was going to get out. I think he knew very well that he was good as dead. And so as it says, I'm crying out to you. He's appealing to the only thing he knows that could possibly offer him hope. His theology is starting to meet practice. Because before, remember, he's a prophet. So he knows everything, but he didn't see a need for everything. Right? He, he was prophesying all these things about God, but didn't think he needed him. Right? That's where we saw the self-righteousness of Jonah. And so it's no longer just him speaking for God, but being an underneath. Verse 3, this is what he says. For you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me as to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah's recognizing who's behind it all. Like, God, you got me in the belly of this fish. Like, you did it. You cast me overboard. You sent the fish to swallow me. You sent the storm to rescue me. He's like, there, there, there's something bigger than him actually being merciful to him and protecting him and being gracious to him. And he's realizing, as I was running, you were chasing me. You know, when, when we disobey the Lord and we, and we withdraw in intimacy, you know, it, I was thinking about this. It's, it's amazing how what often happens after you get back to that place of distress where there's more clarity you see God's hand in it all, right? And then you see how hopeless you are and you see how he really is the only thing that can deliver you from the place you're in. And you see that he's a good God who's been there all along, who's shown his kindness to you, who said, I'm, I'm the answer, I'm the way out for you, not being more self-reliant or dependent on you. And you see his hand along the way in your helplessness. So, so what's going on here then for Jonah? I think maybe for the first time in Jonah's life, he's realizing the depth of his sin. I think, I think maybe, because I don't, I, don't I don't know. I don't know previously. I know right here he's realizing his utter depravity. Like, like he's being laid before a white, hot, holy God. And we're going to see why we know this later as we understand what the temple was and what he's looking at or what he's thinking about. But, but here we see him just, just coming to grips with his rebellion and his disobedience and his sin and God's mercy. And, and he realizes he's just at the bottom. Man, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at the bottom of the sea. The seaweed's wrapped around me. I'm at the root of the mountains, the, the lowest place I could go. I need rescuing. I need help. I think that's what we're seeing this. And he's realizing that he's dependent on the mercy of God and not his religious activity. Right? Because Jonah's got no one to prophesy to now. Right? 
Like there's not masses of crowds getting ready to hear the word of God that he has for him. He's in the belly of a fish with nowhere to run, nowhere to go. So who does he talk to? The only one who's available. The only one who can offer hope and redemption for him, not in the good things that he does, not in him being a prophet, a really religious guy who grew up in a religious environment who said a lot of good things about God. Maybe that's you. You don't see your need for God, but you love talking about him. You love telling everybody else how good he is or the solution to problems, but you never run to him for the solution to your own problems. And that's just breeding self-righteousness, right? We talked about last week, you, you grow in entitlement around the people of the fold of God, and then that shrivels your love for people outside the fold of God. Because you think everything you have, God owed you. The gospel's only good news when you realize you don't deserve it. So when you realize you don't deserve it, then it's really sweet news. Then everything God does through you as an act of worship is great news because you realize I'm an undeserving person doing good things for God, not because I'm a big deal, but because he's a big deal. Because he saved me and rescued me. So Jonah's sin has led him to the deepest place he could possibly go. He's realizing the depth of his depravity. That's why he keeps saying, this is who I am. I'm driven away. I'm at the bottom. I'm at the root of the mountains. Now remember, I believe self-righteousness led him here. So I believe this is the moment where he's realizing all the good religious things he did were just that. Good religious things he did. Being a prophet was his identity, not the grace of God, not the saving work of God in his life. And I think he's sitting here realizing, as he was thinking, the Ninevites, they're pagan. They got issues. I think he's realizing, now, I have issues. Like, I was so focused on the sin of this group, how wicked they were, missed out on the grace of God shown me, that now I'm realizing, man, I'm the one who's messed up. Like, I'm the one who's sinful. Like, I'm the one who needs help. Like, where's his prophecy going to take him now? Nowhere. It's not going to bolster self-esteem. It's not going to bolster self-confidence. And here he's overwhelmed by the grace of God. I, th- I think he might be thinking, I'm as wicked as the Ninevites, maybe more so. It's a sweet place to be. And, 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 and here is, is what's beautiful. Jonah doesn't stop there. Okay, We're going to see repentance turn in his heart. We're going to see godly sorrow. Okay, Because what did we talk about yesterday or last week? Right, Shame and guilt void of the cross leads to depression. Okay, so, so if you just stay there in your guilt and shame, you never run to Jesus, that leads to death, right? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to life and leaves no regret. Okay, but, but, but worldly sorrow leads to death. Okay, okay worldly grief. So that, what that means is when you repent or when you realize your sin, you realize it's not about you just offending someone, it's about you offending him. Right, right? Because lots of people can have worldly grief, right? People can feel bad about what they do. I know plenty of people I know that that don't know Christ, that aren't in the fold of God, that are not adopted by God, that do not love Jesus, and feel very bad and guilty about sinful things they do. That's just worldly grief. They don't realize they've offended a, a, a holy, supreme being. They don't realize that there's sin in light of who he is. And, and this is what Jonah's realizing. We're, we're going to see more of this and, and why we see this, because he's met with the stunning reality that despite the depth of his sin, God's grace is deeper. Look at verse 6. Yet, 
You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He's starting to recognize God's forgiveness. He's, he's, the gospel of Jesus Christ is starting to warm his heart without him realizing it yet. Because he doesn't fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Now, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you reasons why I think he's beginning to see it without realizing he's seeing it. But here you see he's, he's turning to the Lord. He remembers the Lord. He's saying, okay, yet you're bringing me up from the pit. Okay, this is hopefulness now. Okay, in his despair, in his de- just distraughtness, distressed state of mind, he sees the Lord and this, this, he starts rising in his heart. He starts being encouraged because he's seeing the mercy and forgiveness of God. And, and he says here, his eyes are off his predicament and says, I remembered the Lord. Right? The, the pattern for, for the person who overcomes sin in his life is always, okay, I see the circumstance, I see the depth of the sin, I see what the sin is causing me, but then your eyes are moved from that to see only him. It's just God and me only. Okay, hey, hey, that's the issue. It's not, oh, what's this causing? What's this doing? What's the ramifications of this root sin issue in my heart? It's, okay, I'm looking at a supreme, holy, white, hot, amazing, glorious, majestic God. In light of him, I am utterly depraved. And that's the predicament. He remembers the Lord. His eyes are now off of the belly of the fish. It's, hold on a second. I'm looking to you now. I'm, I'm looking to who you are and who I am. And you see him talk about this holy temple. So in him realizing his sin, he talks about the temple. Okay, In verse 4, he says, I look to your temple. Here he says, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Okay, what was the temple? Okay, if you know your Old Testament well, the temple was the place where God made his presence manifested and communicated to his people. All right, now in the temple, there was this, this outer courts, right, where, where most people could go. Then there was this inner court, this inner room. There was a huge veil, a huge thick veil that separated the outer courts from the inner room. And in the inner room what was called the Holy of Holies, right, or the most holy place. Now, this veil was huge. It was a thick curtain, and they actually had engraved on the curtain these cherubims. Cherubims represented the, 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 the guardians of the majesty and glory of God. And what that veil represented was protecting and keeping utter sinful man from an utter holy God. And that's why on the Day of Atonement, only one person once a year, the high priest, could walk in through the veil, go into the Holy of Holies to where the Ark of the Covenant was. And in the Ark of the Covenant was what? The law among a few other things, but the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the tablets, you can learn this in the Old Testament, were in the Ark of the Covenant. And so here he's remembering this temple with the law in the Ark. He's remembering how unholy he was to go into a temple. He's remembering how sinful he is. And what God would do in showing that law is this is how you operate You have to be as holy as I am holy if you want to be in my presence. So what's what's Jonah realizing? I've broken his law. Right? I'm in the belly of a fish. Like, I'm not holy. I'm not perfect. 
Now, right now you're saying, Mike, that's not encouraging. <laughs> it's not. But, but here's what is encouraging. On top of the ark was what? A golden seat called the mercy seat. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in, right, and he would atone for the sins of the people by sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. So, so, so there's a lot happening here, right? Here's what, what I think could be. Because here's what the mercy seat was. The mercy seat was God's way of saying, the punishment that's due you for not being holy and breaking my law, I'm going I'm to make a way for that. There's going to be a sacrifice to atone for that sin. To, to appease the punishment due you. So that blood that's laid from the perfect unblemished animal, normally a lamb, would atone for the sin of the people on the mercy seat. So here as he's thinking about this temple and the high priest, the guy who walks in, the high priest had to do meticulous things. He had to change his clothes, wash his hands, and when he went in there, he even sometimes brought incense to, to light smoke so his eyes were covered from like visibly looking directly at the glory of God. This is, I mean, the picture is just an utter holy God that, that no man can come in the presence of who's so sinful. And here as he's thinking about this temple and seeing all this, I think Jonah's reflecting on the temple going, man, I'm not holy. God is so holy. And God is so merciful that he provided the mercy seat. Atonement for my sin, which is who? I mean, who's our mercy seat? Jesus Christ. I mean, he is the lamb who came and blood was shed that atones for our sins permanently. So I think without him realizing it, he's longing for this. He's seeing the mercy of God in this atonement that happens. But, but really what he's being warmed by is this Jesus who is the lamb who would come and fully atone for sin. And, and who says, I'm not holy, I can't become holy. He says, no, Jesus makes you holy. Jesus gives you his righteousness. Jesus covers you up. What does Paul use in Colossians? It's this imagery of we're, we're hidden in Christ, right? Despite our wicked residual effects of the fall at Romans 7, we try to cut them off this corpse that's attached to us until we reach final glories. We're progressively growing in holiness and sanctification. We're hidden in him positionally. So we know we're not holy and God made the substitute for us to make us holy, which is the only way any possible sinful person could be or with the presence of God. And I believe here Jonah is seeing this and understanding this and reflecting on this. Jonah's remembering the blood sacrifices that would be placed even though they weren't worthy. He's remembering the grace of God, the kindness of God in making a way. And just like the high priest was the mediator, Jesus is our mediator. That's why the veil was torn in two. Because we now have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. We don't need a high priest to walk in and sprinkle blood. The blood was shed once for all sins. So we appeal to his blood that was shed and not someone else going in for us. And there's amazing comfort found. So, so Jonah's response is realizing the good news of God's grace despite his sin. I mean, there's a thousand places you could go, but all we know is, man, he's looking at the temple. He's remembering that God was gracious, that God made a way, that God provided an atonement for his sin, that God still is gracious, that God still forgives. He's seeing the holiness of God and the sinfulness of himself. Now look at what he says in verse 8. Those, I think this honestly could be like 
the linchpin of the Bible. I love verse 8. A lot of commentators say that this is the gospel in the Old Testament. We're going to look at 8 and 9. It says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What's happening? Jonah is being awakened to his idolatry. He's been worshiping himself. He loves being a prophet. And, and that's, this is why, what's the first commandment? This is why, that's why I think he's thinking about the temple, where the commandments were in the ark, and, and he's realizing that he has created vain idolatry. And what is the first commandment that God gave? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, Martin Luther said, I think this is really good, he said that really every breaking of every other commandment is a breaking of the first one. Like if, if you form and cultivate other gods, then, then, then you're going to break all the rest of the commandments. So idolatry is the root of every sin. Because everyone, religious or irreligious, is worshiping something. And that's what sin is, guys. Like, like sin is placing anything, greater worth in anything above God. That's what sin is. Sin is finding greater joy, greater worth, greater fulfillment in anything apart from the one true God who made the universe. It's building your self-worth on other things. This is why in Isaiah 42, God makes a statement that's amazing. He says, I will not give my glory to another, to anything to anyone. Like, I, like I'm not going to share it, right? And, and that's why if you open up your Bible and you unpack from Genesis to Revelation, the unending continuous theme in this book is that everything was made. What drives the universe is God being given glory and worshiped as the one true God. And that's why you feel so dissatisfied when you run to other things, other trinkets and toys, other ideas, or yourself, or other mini-gods to replace him, and you feel more empty after using them. Because you're worshiping vain idols. And you're forsaking the steadfast love of Christ. That's continuous and endless and overflowing from the cross, overflowing from his throne. Hebrews 4, you approach his throne of grace, right, to find help in time of need. It's just overflowing. You just stand under the waterfall as long as you want. It's steadfast. But, but what happens in our sin, we forsake that and run after something else and make that our God. And that's what we're seeing here is Jonah's realizing his idolatry, his worship of many other things and not the true God. He's trying to smash his idols. Profound, right? Amazing what we're seeing here he realizes I'm a glory thief I love stealing glory from God I loved being a prophet because it boosted me but then when you asked me to go prophesy to wicked pagans and Ninevites I thought I was a really big deal and I was much more righteous than they were and I deserved the grace of God and the gifts God gave me so I'm not going there and God's just leveling him here you are in the belly of a fish how, how good are you now How's your prophecy going to work out? You can tell it to me. I already know it, right? I mean, that, there's no use there. 
And here's what I love. He doesn't know what to do because what? He can't light a fire in the belly of the whale, or the fish. Whoa, shoot. Uh, right? So, okay. We'll delete that in the recording. Okay, so, so here, 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 here's, here's, bring it back. Oh, man. So, so here's what he does. See, I grew up with the same stuff, right? It's just programmed. So here's the thing. He can't light a fire, right? Last time I checked, fish don't eat sheep, okay? So there's no lamb sitting there where you can sprinkle blood or offer atonement. So he goes, man, I'm just going to give thanksgiving. I'm just going to praise. And I'm just going to make a vow to you and fulfill that promise that I'm going to worship you. He's, he's, just, he's, he's just reveling in worship and seeing God's mercy despite him forsaking his steadfast love for idols. This is why everything exists, not so that you might be happy or unhappy, not so that you might be saved or lost, but primarily that God might be given worship and praise because of his infinite perfections. Because he's so righteous. And until you find yourself in a place where you're gazing and looking at a white, hot, amazing, holy God and how sinful you are, you're not going to really worship. You're not going to really find great, deep-rooted joy in your worship of God or how good he is in saving you. This is why all God's good gifts are given to us so that we might use them in worshiping him. And when you refuse to do that and use all God's good gifts to you on worshiping you or things about you or around you, it doesn't lead to true joy or everlasting joy. So Jonah took being a prophet and used it and terminated that gift on himself and not in giving greater worship to God. And now he's seeing the reason for all of those gifts given to him. So this is, this is why, if you just follow the list of commandments, why do you lie? Because you want to look better, so you make people gods, and you lie to make them believe things about you that aren't true of you. Because you want worship. Well, why do you steal? Because you want something so bad that you make that thing God, you make that thing ultimate, so you'll break the law to get it. Because you're worshiping that thing you have to have. Why do you covet? Why do you have hatred in your heart? Right? I mean, just, just follow the list down the line of commandments and you do all of them because of number one. It's all idolatry. It's all you worshiping something else and wanting something else outside of him. And so Jonah is realizing this and this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. The gospel of Jesus Christ reveals your love for other gods. It reveals your love for other things. It reveals the longing in your heart to worship something that will make much of you and not much of God. And so here we're seeing this right here, that, that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Right, right. This is why when you've been made new in Jesus Christ, here's what happens. The law no longer terrifies you. Okay? Stay with me. Bye-bye. Okay? The law no longer terrifies you, Right? The law tastes sweet to you. That, that's why David said, the law is like honey on my lips. But when he understands how good the law is, that's why when, when, when the law says, hey, don't have any other gods that aren't me, you go, why would I have another god? I mean, other gods have to be appeased. Other gods you have to make sacrifices to. You're the only god who made a sacrifice of yourself to appease yourself and bring me to yourself. Like, like why would I worship another god who just, just wants sacrifices endlessly? I love the God of grace. Or when he says, don't take the Lord our God's name in vain. How could I be trite about the one who rescued me? 
How can I say things about the God who ransomed me to himself and showed me radical grace and mercy? When the law says don't do and do, you say, yeah, of course I don't want to do and do, so I make you visible. So people see more of your character and more of your holiness and more of your purity and more of your perfections somehow in sinful, wicked, depraved me. The law all of a sudden is sweet to the soul. So Jonah's repenting of his idolatry here. He's smashing the idols in his heart. He's saying, I'm done with the idolatry of myself. I'm done with finding more worth in what I do for God than what God did for me. Find more worth in what God did for you and not what you do for him. And you'll have some joy in your life. You'll have some freedom in your life. And he turns to God in obedience, makes the sacrifice. says, I'm going to keep my word, keep my vow. I'm going to make promises to you and do those promises. And as he's made aware of his sin and God's grace, he shouts, salvation belongs to the Lord. I literally picture him standing up as he's realizing all of this, as he's experiencing the warming of the gospel of Jesus Christ that doesn't fully see realized yet, as he's gazing upon the temple, as he sees the foreshadowing of of the perfect land that was going to come, he's just being warmed by God's grace in his life and just stands up and he can't say anything else. He just says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation doesn't belong to my self-righteousness. Salvation doesn't belong to how well or nice my family looks. Salvation doesn't belong to how many good religious things I do. Salvation doesn't belong to my prayer life. Salvation doesn't belong to my Bible reading life. Salvation doesn't belong to how many times I attend church. Salvation doesn't belong to my community group. Salvation belongs to nothing else other than the Lord. He's my hope. He's my rock. He's my refuge. He's my salvation. Now, here's... Here lies the danger. Don't forget that Jonah knew this. He knew this, but he didn't know this. Because so many of us constantly say, yeah, no, I know the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to move on to, like, other principles now. No, 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 let me, let me, let me get to something else. No, 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 no. The Christian's call on his life is a never-stopping, never-ending gaze at the cross of Jesus Christ. Never stop marveling. Like, never stop staring at it. Constantly be perplexed. That's what happens. When you stare at it long enough, you just, it doesn't make sense to you. How could a God, if he's really this holy, if he's really like the Bible describes, I'm really this sinful, I mean, how could he show me mercy? I mean, something I don't deserve at all. I mean, how could God do that for me? And I'm telling you, that's where you will find your true joy. That's where you'll find your sweetest of theology. That you were a sinner saved by grace. That you're a rebellious thief, ransomed to God. That you were lost and you were found. That you were running with no good father or good dad or good protection, and he, he grafted you as an orphan into his family. Like, like until, until we start continuing to go back there, that's where you'll find true rest. That's where you'll find true peace. Amidst everything else you're trying to worship or cure or fix in your life, Christ died for sinners 
for his glory and your joy, to ransom you to himself. We keep going back to that. Now listen, why do I say that? Because you can have sound doctrine. You can move on to all the principles. You can know much, some of you know much more than me in this book. And most people, and I'm telling you, you can be as selfish, arrogant, prideful, and undisciplined as everyone else. So be so careful. Be so careful because that is what characterized Jonah. He knew everything about God. God was giving him all the words to say to people. And he didn't see his need for it. He didn't realize the grace he was given. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been as hostile as he was to the Ninevites. Otherwise, he wouldn't have, when he saw the good character of God, said, no, I don't want to go because you'll actually forgive him and show mercy. I believe that's what created hostility with him. And in God bringing a storm of mercy, saving him using a fish, bringing him to a place where he wasn't relearning anything, guys. He wasn't relearning anything. He was realizing more deeply the truth about God's grace despite the depth of his sin. This was nothing new for him. He was just rediscovering. How often do you go to the gospel and press refresh? Before you go on the next webpage, refresh again. Hold on, I gotta get it. Refresh, refresh, refresh. Right, you do that all the way to eternal glory. And God is good. And here's what God does. God, God responds. God listens. He answers him in verse 10. Not the way we would think. Uh, he speaks to the fish. That's, that's crazy. So here the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah upon dry land. Again, an act of mercy, guys. Now, I don't think that was terribly fun. Okay? Like, I don't know if you've ever been vomited out of an animal. Probably not. Uh, if you had, I hope I would know, but, but th- this is, God must have caused him to beach himself or something, right, that caused this whale to spew him back up, spit him back up on dry land, and now Jonah is exactly where God wanted him to be all along so he can know, go now and love a city with true, repentant, forgiving love where he sees the grace of God that he doesn't deserve and do it well. I mean, he's right where the Lord wants him to be. Now, now just for fun, vomiting in the Bible, if you do a word study on it, it's a really fun word study. Um, probably none of you have chosen that word to do, but you'll see that every time in Scripture, outside of this one, it's used in the sinful or gross sense. Revelation 3, the lukewarm church in Laodicea, he wanted to spit them out of his mouth. The hypocrite in 2 Peter is like a dog returning to his vomit. In Job chapter 20, you have the guy who grew wealthy unjustly, and God said he would vomit it up. Except here. This is the only beautiful vomiting. (laughs) Enjoy that. This is the only vomiting in the Bible that is a beautiful thing. Just just for food for thought, just to enjoy it. It's the only pleasant vomiting in the Bible because it's the mercy of God. Joan, I'm releasing you. I'm sending you. You realize your sin. You realize how good I am. You're killing your idolatry. You realize my steadfast love for you. You're seeing the temple that I'm making a way for atonement for your sin. You're crying out to me in distress. I'm answering you. I'm hearing you. You're turning to me. You're stopping your running. You're just seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ in chapter 2. That's all you're seeing. Not all you're seeing. Like, that's it. Like, that's, that's all that you're seeing. 
Now, how, how do we respond? I think there's a, a number of types of ways we could respond this morning, right, based upon who we are or how we function or, or how we live. I think, number one, there's, there's a group in here this morning that, that there are some of you who have never really grasped, grasped the depth of your sin. And, and, and every time you think about hell or judgment, you think it's very rigid or unloving because you don't understand how holy he is and how sinful you are. You've never acknowledged that. You've never really looked at that honestly. And you, all your whole life, you just had people praise you and tell you how good you are. Listen, you're not good. You do good things. You might be nice. You might feed the poor. You might attend worship. But you do no, none of those good things motivated out of a desire to worship and please him. You do them out of, at the bottom end of the day, a desire to worship you or something else that you think you're going to get by doing those things. You're worshiping another God. I don't know what that is for you. But you're running to that God, not Jesus. That's why when you worship and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, your life changes. And all of a sudden, the sin begins to be crucified progressively as you go. Because you have a new God, a good God, a good father, a good master who ransomed you to himself and bought you with his blood. So I, I would just encourage you, maybe some of you in here, until you understand the depth of your need for grace, you don't see grace as a gift. You see it as deserved, not undeserved. And until you realize you don't deserve the mercy and grace of God, you're not going to run to it. There's maybe another group. Um, you realize how sinful you are. You do. But you don't realize how infinitely more gracious God is. Here's what I mean. Just like the self-righteous person wallows in his pride about being good about all the things that he does, you wallow in self-pity, which is pride, about not being good enough for God's grace. So here's what you're saying. You think that it's a good thing. It's really you being very prideful. He could never love me. I'm no good. How could he ever accept me? And you just stay there. And what you're saying is I'm worse than God is good. You're saying I'm more sinful than the infinite measure and depth of God's grace. And I'm saying, get out of that. No one could love me. Yes, he did in Christ. Yeah, he did. Well, I could never really get on my, yeah, you can. With the power of Christ, yeah, you can. Well, I've just got so many issues that he'll kill him. He'll crucify him in your life. Follow him, submit to him as Lord, trust him, run to him, love him, serve him. He'll, he'll redeem that in you, okay? But be careful that you don't, because I think a lot of people find themselves in this place where they just, they just wallow their whole life. I'm never good enough. Be, no, listen, you're blaspheming the cross. Like, like, like the very purpose of the cross is saying, man, the worst of sinners. Paul's saying, I was the worst of sinners. Look at my resume. Man, the guy was killing Christians, sending people to prison, and then he gets saved on the road to Damascus. And God says, man, I'm showing you mercy and kindness. No matter how wicked you are, which you are, which I am, which we all are, in our different spheres of influence, we're all born with a disposition to choose outside of God's deal and worship something else. 
And God says, no, no. Again, like last week, the cross levels the playing field. Run to him. Run to him. That's why we celebrate. That's why we worship. And there's others of you who understand grace. You understand the cross very well. And my encouragement would just be go deeper. There are always deeper waters to swim in. Grace, I heard it said one time, is like a mansion. There's always more doors to open. There are always more places to go. There are always more closets to hide in. You haven't uncovered it. Keep going down. Keep discovering more about the grace and kindness of God. Let's ask him for help to do that. Jesus, thank you that your grace is deep. Thank you that you're our forgiver. Thank you that you rescued us. Thank you that you're so kind to us. God, help us to understand how good you are, how kind you are. God, I just pray that Jesus and his gospel would be our answer each morning, each day. God, I pray that you would help us to be face-to-face with the reality of you much more often than we are. God, may that give us courage in our walk, joy in our identity that is wrapped up and hidden in Jesus. God, thank you for the picture of Jonah repenting and turning to a good God who finds forgiveness and motivation to move forward. Not a perfect man, but a repentant man. God, shape this church by just something that themes and models repentance. And God, as we observe the Lord's Supper now, I pray that we would be reminded of the centrality of Jesus in all things. That this is the gospel that we are celebrating. That you broke your body, that you shed your blood for the forgiveness of our sin, for the sacrifice needed to appease you and absorb the wrath of God for us on our behalf. God, may we respond in worship and song and joy. God, might you save some this morning in your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.